SwineNet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. There was no collaboration. There was tremendous conflict of interest. People were trying to develop vaccines that nobody was sharing. It brought forth the, uh, I think, the infamous quotation from the late Dr. Mike Murtaugh. In those days, veterinary research was an oxymoron. And that was clearly true. It was bad. It was bad. And uh, I'm glad that has improved. And we've seen good changes as we've kind of made our way into the next decade or Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like Elanco's Prevacent, a new PERS Spective. Visit prevacentprrs.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to Swine Eat Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high health registered purebred swine in the globe having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis Genetic Program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hello everyone, today we have Dr. Scott D on the topic of evolution of swine veterinary research over the last 30 years and what the future holds. How are you Dr. D? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to our conversation. Yes, I appreciate your time and and uh, I know everyone right now is trying to adjust their uh, schedules and everything, so, so I appreciate that. No problem. So the first question we always like to ask here, Dr. D, is uh, if you can share about your career so far for those that don't know you and also how you got involved in pig production. Yeah, yeah, I kind of took a backward path. I'm uh, I'm not from a farm. I'm from a city nice. called Rochester, Rochester, Minnesota, where you know, people might know of the Mayo Clinic. That's uh, one of the Mayo Clinic. So I don't have a common path such as growing up on a farm and and going into veterinary medicine right away. Mm-hmm. I actually was going to be a either a, a doctor mm-hmm. or a companion animal veterinarian. Okay. Because all I'd ever really experienced was were dogs and I love dogs and huh. I thought being a doctor of dogs would be kind of fun. Wow. But I started spending some time uh, looking at pigs uh, with with some guidance from one of my veterinary mentors. And he said, you, you know, if you really want to get into vet school, you should uh, spend some time on a, a farm just so you can see the other side of the mm-hmm. of the equation. Right. Right. So I, I, I got a job at the Mayo Clinic Research Farm 
where they had animal models for human diseases. And I was fascinated by populations of animals and how that was used for research. So I saw two new things that summer, mm -hmm. uh, research, which I hadn't really had a lot of experience in. I was only 19 or 20. And then I saw pigs in herds and flocks of uh, ducks and, and, mm -hmm. and, and groups of animals instead of just a single dog on the, on the table, right? Mm -hmm. So that was like whole sorts of new paradigms for me. And uh, I went off to college to become a veterinarian and I was going to be uh, a pig veterinarian. Mm -hmm. I was interested in pigs and, and I met Al Lehman, Dr. Al Lehman, the late Al Lehman, yeah. at the University of Minnesota, who has influenced so many people. Right. And he got me so excited about being a swine veterinarian that uh, that was my only path uh, I was full speed ahead. He uh, he could have probably convinced me to be, to be a camel veterinarian. You know, he was so motivational. Wow. So, so through Al, I met you know the late Carlos Pejuan. I met Hansu Ju, who became my graduate advisor. I met Bob Morrison, the late Bob Morrison. I met Tom Molitor. A lot of these legendary people at the University of Minnesota. Right. And uh, that was it, man. I was going pigs and I was hardcore and off we went into practice and uh, a pig practice my, for my first 12 years out of school. Yeah, uh, PERS came along and I, we can have a whole other discussion, but it, it, uh, it gave me the idea to go to graduate school. I already gone to graduate school once. I got a master's degree in microbiology and I, want, I went back for a Ph.D., and started working on PERS, uh, kind of control programs for PERS, nursery depopulation, guilt acclimatization, breeding herd, subpopulations. A lot of the basic things we kind of take for granted now mm -hmm. came out of that PhD. And wow. yeah, I got so interested in research, I went back to the university as a faculty member. Mm -hmm. I was there for 12 years working with Carlos, working with Bob, working with Hansu, everybody. But kind of as I show in my career, after 10 to 12 years in one place, I got bored. So I was a I was a practitioner for 12 years, a faculty member for 12 years. And since that time, I've been at Pipestone, where I'm the director of applied research for about nine years now. So, wow. yeah, that's a really backward path, and including three rejection, uh, two rejections from veterinary school. I couldn't get in right away. Wow. Yeah. So. I went to grad school in microbiology, as I mentioned. That was my backup plan. I finally made it in, wow. and off we went. That's kind of how it goes. Wow, that's super cool. Yeah, super cool story. And it's funny because I, my beginnings in the pig production is very similar as well. I went to the vet school, mostly thinking about dogs because I had a bunch of we had a kennel. So it's so so interesting to hear. It's a very similar path there into the pig side. And then a little bit of a spoiler alert for some of the, our, our audience on the, you know, on the, your theory about right side, left side of the brain. And you're going to speak about that in our conference coming up. Um, we don't have to get in, in depth today, but uh, you're also a musician, right? I am. I am. I, uh, I am a self-taught bass guitarist. That's super cool. Um, since I was, I think, six or seven years old. Wow. I started playing the bass guitar, influenced by the Beatles, can't read any music, 
um, but learned how to play just by listening to the records. And I think that's the right side of the brain working. And like you say, we're going to talk about that and how that might influence the left side and how the two sides might work together in designing experiments. That'll be a lot of fun. Super cool. Super cool. Now, talking about experiments, let me ask you about what does the history of swine vet research look like? In the last 30 years, you have a tremendous experience. How, if you can give us some pointers on the past as we start looking to the future as well. Yeah, one of my favorite topics. So I, I do appreciate the opportunity to visit about it. And it kind of tells me how old I'm getting because I can actually talk about 30 years. I've been a, a veterinarian for 32 years. So nice. that's kind of scary. You know? <laughs> uh, but I have seen a great deal and I've seen a great deal of changes. And if I go back to when I started 30 years ago, universities were kind of the drivers of research. There really wasn't much going on in the field. There wasn't anything like the large research enterprises we have today in the field that we can talk about when we look into the present and future. But the end of the universities kind of ran the show. They were very small in scale as far as their facilities, population sizes, experimental designs. It was a real small kind of sterile environments in which they worked. And that was important for basic science, uh, but I'm an applied scientist. And so that was one thing that was kind of the uh, very commonly observed in, in those days, uh, many decades ago now, is just the scale was so small. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't much industry involvement, which I think was a mistake. I think uh, uh, the universities would have benefited from in involving industry early on. We'll talk about that. The other thing clearly was the pathogens this is pre-PERS, but the pathogens, the, the experiments we're looking at were much simpler to deal with. Uh, you had APP, you know, you had pseudorabies virus, parvovirus, Bordetella. I mean, you have these organisms that you look at, they're very simple compared to what we have to deal with today. And so 30 years ago, that was the scope, small projects, sterile facilities, much simpler pathogens. Mm -hmm. Things really changed when PERS came along. And back then it was called mystery swine disease. So now we're in like 1988, 89. I got to see that as a practitioner right out of school. And as far as research goes, I call it the mystery swine disease debacle because it was a disaster. Nobody was working together. Everybody was fighting wow. see who could be the first to isolate the virus. There was no collaboration. There was tremendous conflict of interest. People were trying to develop vaccines and nobody was sharing. It brought forth the, uh, I think, the infamous quotation from the late Dr. Mike Murtaugh, who was a friend of mine, unfortunately passed a few years ago, that in those days, veterinary research was an oxymoron. And that was clearly true. <laughs> it was bad. It was bad. And... Uh, I'm glad that has improved and we've seen good changes as we kind of made our way into the next decade or so. But that mystery swine disease debacle where everybody was so anti-collaboration and all everyone for themselves. And mm. it was very depressing because I was a young vet. I was out in practice. Mm. I wasn't, I wasn't getting any help from any of these groups because they were so busy trying to feather their own nests, so to speak, that uh, they weren't working in, they weren't working with the field very well. 
So, in, the, in course, no collaboration. The Dutch win the war. The Dutch group figures out what it is, and eventually the U.S. does too. But uh, the Dutch work together much better, and they gave us a good example how to collaborate on these types of difficult viruses that were now forthcoming. Tougher pathogens these days, PERS virus. So we don't, you know, we can talk about that all day. PED. Uh, all the foreign animal disease issues we're we're fighting now. Very, very difficult environment. So the, the, the complexity has increased. Mm-hmm. And that's forced researchers to really develop more practice-based facilities, more practice-based research. So practices, organizations from industry have stepped forward and started to develop research enterprises mostly applied, you know, the basic sciences are still best left to the universities, but the applied sciences, I think, are much better in the field. The facilities are much more representative of current facilities. Population sizes are much larger, and there's a great deal of collaboration with industry. For example, our our Pipestone Research Group at this time, uh, basically, we can do everything a university can do as it pertains to applied research, and we can do it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got tremendous resources. We've got five wean to finish research facilities. We've got a one BSL2 facility. We've got our own animal care and use committee. We've got our two biostatisticians. We've got graduate students. We publish papers and uh, we do applied work, CRO work, production work, nutrition work. And I think on our staff of veterinarians now and nutritionists, we probably have 20 people with graduate degrees. Wow. Just one example. There are other good examples of this, not just us, but it's 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 one example where a agribusiness led by veterinarians has changed the paradigm as far as how research is done again in the applied setting. And it's outpaced the universities for the most part uh, by long strides. I would compliment Iowa State, Kansas State, South Dakota State. There are some universities, Minnesota, there are some universities that are trying to do some of that, and they're very helpful to partner with. But one of the changes, as you requested, is what's changed are these larger research divisions that are part of a veterinary group. Mm -hmm. So Carthage, for example, Carthage Veterinary Services has a a really nice research enterprise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Swine Vet Center, uh, they've got research facilities. So a lot of the leading practices, so to speak, have developed these uh, outstanding research enterprises. So that's that's kind of how the paradigm has shifted and how it's evolved from, again, the small-scale university where everything started into the more large-scale real-world settings that I've been describing. So, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's super cool. And, and I love the collaboration and and what I see here in the U.S., it's amazing as far as that goes. Uh, and I see, I see some of the other places I interact with uh, also trying to get uh, much better on that collaboration side of things. Um, what do you think were the biggest lessons for you for the last 30 years uh, besides the collaboration side of things? Yeah, so the, the collaboration is important because industry you know, companies that you might be studying something like air filtration or feed mitigation, companies have resources and they have technical services that are helpful. So you partner with those people. It just, it's just not money. It's, 
it's also some scientific expertise. Right. That's a good that's a good model. That's one of the lessons, you know, that we should continue to practice. Uh, the other lesson I learned from all of this is it's important to develop models to simulate the real world. Uh, you, we have to come up with ways to reproduce under controlled conditions what happens in the real world, depending on what the question is. Mm-hmm. You know, ideas come forward that I remember, you know, the snowball in hell work we did long ago with PERS and the ice ball where we put it under the wheel well of a truck and drive it around and mm-hmm. show that we can move. Cars. I got that idea from uh, in the wintertime of looking at a bunch of vehicles in a parking lot with a bunch of sludge underneath, you know, ice and snow underneath and saying, I wonder if virus is there and would that be a way to move virus around? The production region model we set up where we had small facilities within a close proximity to represent a, a neighborhood of pig production to study airborne transmission and air filtration. Mm-hmm. Uh, that came from an idea just seeing a trailer, a bunch of a trailer court with some trailer homes next to each other mm-hmm. and just kind of thinking that, gosh, you know, that's that almost looks like a little model of a, a swine dense region. Mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. We set it up that way and have treatments and controls and study airborne movement. The whole idea for feed came from going to uh, you know, Dr. Gordon Spronk's brother, Randy's feed mill, and seeing a bag of choline coming from China mm-hmm. and starting asking the question, oh my gosh, could this be a way that viruses are coming across the ocean in in packaged <laughs> bags of feed? So, yeah. It's, it's having this, it's having an awareness uh, and looking at ways to again reproduce or model what happens in the real world. So that's one of the biggest lessons I've ever learned is try to set that up as you can have replications, you can have controls, you can have various treatments. And in a short period of time, you can generate some interesting pilot data. Those would be some things I've learned as I've kind of traveled down the path. Very nice, yeah. Trying to figure out the right question and uh, and figure out that model around that question rather than just coming up with uh, just trying to adapt from what we've been doing. Right? Really, I think uh, I like I follow Elon Musk a lot, and he talks about the first principles. You know, boiling down, boiling things things down to to its core components to try to answer that question. So I think it's along those lines as well. I like that. Very cool. So if we transition to today, Dr. D, uh, what would be common mistakes or common things that you see in vet research, swine vet research, that uh, could, in your experience, could, we should change, we should improve? Well, again, as a former faculty member, and I don't mean to pick mm-hmm. on universities, but they need to be, they need to be better connected. They need to be connected to the industry for resources as well as ideas and just staying, staying uh, relevant. Uh, from the practice side, for the, the practices that are setting up uh, research enterprises, I think one of the mistakes I've seen is you've got to be sure you have the right people, the trained people in uh, key positions. Mm-hmm. You, you do have to have somebody who's gone through some type of graduate training, either master's or PhD level, to add credibility to your research enterprise. I think if you don't have that, experimental designs might be set up improperly and then you get garbage in, garbage out kind of information. 
a great example is uh, in, in these practical settings, at times I see veterinarians is, you know, relying on a natural challenge. You're going to study vaccine if efficacy, for example, they'll vaccinate a group of pigs and leave some as non-vaccinated controls, which is great, but they, well, we'll just let nature take its course and we'll let a natural challenge occur, be it of PCB2 or be it of Streptococcus suis or PERS or whatever. That's a big mistake uh, because most of the time that never happens. You know, you want to, you, you think you're going to have a challenge and it doesn't happen. You, you really got to organize your, your experimental designs to have a purposeful challenge where you've got an agent that you inoculate a subset of pigs with and you let that agent spread through the population in, you know, encountering the treatment groups, encountering the control groups. You got to have that day zero and you got to have a quantified amount of inoculum. And you got to be able to do that versus just rely on nature because we've, we have failed again several times trying that approach. We, we've been much more successful with a purposeful challenge, which brings about a whole lot of questions. Obviously, you need an animal care committee. You should have a scientist involved. So another, a trained person involved. Uh, you got to work with your board of animal health. You got to communicate with the neighborhood. You got to do, you got to do the due diligence. You just can't go in there and fire blindly. But uh, if you do it right, you can really get some great data on large groups. And so, you know, if we're testing PERS vaccines in one of our research facilities, it's a 2,400 head facility. We'll have three groups, 800 pigs with vaccine A, 800 pigs with vaccine B, and 800 pigs with no vaccine. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll expose that population to a cedar pig challenge model. And we'll follow those pigs from wean to finish and into the packing facility. That's a powerful model and it sells well for uh, you know bringing companies on board to help sponsor the costs versus just rolling the dice and saying well let's see if we get infected or not we you have to raise the bar and, and perform at a level of rigor that's university like or higher yeah i love it yeah and, and i i don't i don't know if you mentioned but the the whole thing with uh having the negative control right we still see that sometimes we we see that missing sometimes in some places. That's a cardinal sin. You have to have a negative control group or else you have no way of comparing your treatment impact versus, you know, a non-vaccinated group. It's, we've made that mistake one time and we'll never make that mistake again. Exactly. It's, that's the thing, right? It's okay to, be, yep. to commit mistakes, but we need to learn. So. Yep, exactly. Cool. So as we transition here, Dr. D, to the future, uh, where do you see the swine vet veterinary research going here in the next five to 10 years? Well, there's going to be more, more and more private research enterprises, mm -hmm. like I described. Uh, I used our group as an example. Uh, that, that's, that's a good model, and it brings good data to the industry. The industry is willing to pay for that, and uh, it, it just... Unfortunately, it's hard for the universities to compete because they've got, uh, you know, you you write a, a research grant from a private enterprise, you can use 100% of the money for research. You write a research grant from the university, 50% of it goes back to the department for salary savings and indirect costs. And that model is not going to work long term, at least not in the applied side. Maybe in the basic side where you can go NIH and some of this, but 
you know, a lot of organizations in the applied side won't even won't allow that. And so we can always win that battle because we write those grants where 100% of the money is going to be used for the research project, not to pay salaries or electric bills. Right. That's just reality. And until universities change and become more flexible, they're they're doomed. It's not going to hold up long term. I think the next five or 10 years, we have to continue to look at global issues, not just hmm. PERS on the farm. We, of course, the domestic issues are extremely important, but we have to expand into the global issues. And I know we're going to talk about it uh, down the road, but mm-hmm. for example, the feed risk, you know, looking at full animal disease movement around the world in feed, uh, that information had never been really evaluated before. And that's, we've got to look out beyond just the, the local neighborhood and start thinking, what do I bring to the industry? How can I help the industry through solving global problems, not just how does one vaccine compare it to another? Our leadership team is very uh, uh, passionate about doing that work and publishing that work in peer-reviewed journals. So, the, you know, the open access journals where everyone has mm-hmm. the ability to read it and not keep, not keep that private at all. That's, that's Luke Minion, Joel Neerham, Gordon Spronk, Barry Kirkhart, the leadership group of Pipestone wants us to do that work to benefit the greater good. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the groups, the clinics, the businesses that are setting up these research enterprises, uh, they have to look down that road too. That's even though, you, you know, it's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be a company priority for like information, protecting information. That's information the, the industry needs. And so those are just a few things I see coming. They're already happening, but they, they're going to continue to come faster in the uh, next five to 10 years. Very cool. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And uh, I guess that was you know, as we transition over the last several decades, I mean, of course, recently it was clear with African swine fever, and now the the world is going through a very tough time right now, and so it's it's probably a very good timing to bring that message. As uh, things are very global, we know that, but it's clear, even clearer now. That's exactly right. I uh, I know with COVID nineteen, the coronavirus. I just think back to PED in the U.S. in 2013, 2014, how the, within a very short period of time, the swine veterinary profession and the swine scientific organizations, they isolated the virus, they developed a PCR, they developed a serological test, they, you know, discovered ways the virus could move around through feed, for example, and they figured out a a way to eliminate it from farms. And that was all done in a very short period of time. Right. I'm hoping that the human side of things uh, can adapt that quickly with this coronavirus challenge of today. And I'm hoping that veterinarians get involved in, in helping them. Right. Because talk about a response to a, a new pathogen, how well our profession right. responded. That was universities, that was clinics, that was diagnostic labs, that was a real comprehensive effort. I think that's a good model for the, uh, for the human side. Yeah, that makes total sense. I was thinking about that too. Like, hey, it's it, it almost my perception is, is almost like the the swine vet side of things had a more coordinated response, and maybe it's just because we we you know deal with that on a daily basis instead of a once in a, a 
sensory basis type of type of thing, you know. Yeah, and I I think it goes back to the original mystery swine disease debacle story I told a few minutes ago, where it was completely opposite. And I think we learned from that. We learned how detrimental that isolationism approach was and how faster we can solve problems like the Dutch did if we work together. So I was really proud of uh, the swine veterinary profession and how they handle that coronavirus. Very interesting. Well, very good, Dr. D. Now, anything else on this topic before we move to the three questions we ask every guest every episode? <laughs> no. I uh, I think I've vented pretty good on a few things here, so I'm, I'm curious to hear what kind of feedback you get. Cool. But uh, well, I've just been through I've been through so many of these uh, changes over time and seen things from so many different perspectives. I it comes from the heart. Yes, absolutely. That's what we want. We want uh, you know uh, we want to discuss things uh, hopefully without filter. You know. The truth is, precision swine production is not the future, it is the present. Every Pig is the intelligent pig health platform. It is a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Request a free 20-minute demonstration at www.everypig.co slash swineit. For all swine-related news and information, go to swineweb.com. It is time to our famous three. First question, Dr. D, is what's your favorite pig-related book? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one. The pigs are, there are so many books about pigs. Um, it, it would have to be the Winnie the Pooh stories with Piglet. Uh, he's probably the first little pig I ever saw when I was a young child in a, in a cartoon Mm-hmm. Not so much. I like the Disney side of it, but I like the original, the A.A. A. Milne mm-hmm. and Ernest Shepard uh, volumes of Winnie the Pooh. And, but Piglet was always my favorite. And I had a, actually had a stuffed animal who looked just like the original Piglet. I still have it. So uh, oh, wow. he, he wins. He wins the award for my favorite pig in the book of Winnie the Pooh. Super cool. No, I like that. How about a book in general besides pig production? Uh, well, that would have to be James Harriet, All Creatures Great and Small, which I read in uh, high school, I think. And the story telling stories about veterinarians, the old fashioned on the farm veterinarian in England, you know, up to his waist in muck and mire. And, and a, those are really entertaining, motivational stories. And I think he's, he's passed away now, but, uh, the, the individual who wrote those books, uh, that was he was a brilliant author, and he sounds like he was pretty good at veterinary medicine. He did more good for veterinary medicine than most of us will ever do in our lives, just based on his ability to tell a good story and and get people interested in in that lifestyle. That's super nice. Yeah, I I think I've heard of his book, but never never read it. So it's uh, thanks for that. Last one is: What do you think sets apart successful swine professionals from those who are not? I would say that you ask yourself the question, how bad do you want it? And what are you prepared to do to get it as far as succeeding in swine medicine as a veterinarian? How bad do you want to succeed? And what are you going to do? How, how, how far will you go? And I, I go back to my own situation as a young vet in the face of mystery swine disease in a very depressed 
period of my life. Can't solve the problem, wasn't getting any help from the labs. Nobody knew what it was. Everybody was fighting. I went back to graduate school, uh, stayed in practice because I was, a, I was a, I had my own business at the time, but I stayed in practice and I went to graduate school at University of Minnesota and did a PhD and to get better, to become a better veterinarian, to become a better scientist, a better thinker. And it was the greatest thing I ever did because uh, we, we came up with some some helpful things that we published a lot of papers. We got some attention and it really helped boost my career. But that's a lot of work. I mean, if you if you want to, you know, how bad do you want that? And what are you prepared to do to get it? That's my example of that's what I was prepared to do. And I wanted it pretty bad because I felt like a total failure. I, I had to. Uh, I had to improve my skill sets and thank goodness I still had uh, great connections with that swine group. Uh, Hansu Ju, Bob Morrison, Carlos Pijuan, Tom Molitor, all those wonderful people who I'll never ever forget and can't thank enough for the support and mentoring that they gave me. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, 90% is showing up, right? And <laughs> working hard and, and going after it. No, I like that. Now, uh, a bonus question here, if you will, is uh, you, you mentioned the word thinker, right? And uh, for me, you are a very, very good thinker. Um, what is, when I say thinker, I, I say original thinker, right? Mm, Come up you. with your own ideas. Thank you. Any any insights there? Uh, I mean, uh, as far as, I don't know, the resources or anything else that you think that can help come up with original ideas? I think a lot of that's just imagination. And and being observant in the field and asking the right question, seeing something going on and wondering why you why that happens, and then trying to figure out a way to test uh, whether that's the right thing to do or not. I I, I don't know if, if you can develop that. I think you're born with that, mm-hmm. and I and I think that's the right side of the brain working a little bit, and the creativity side of the brain in combination then with the cognitive side of the brain. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that discussion with you uh, at your conference. But some of that is, is just self you know, induced or developed over time. And, you know, the, the PhD program, you're trained to be an independent scientist. You're trained to act on your own and uh, develop projects on your own and, and that's a, a nice way to kind of fine tune it all. But I think you kind of have to have that in your DNA before you can, you know, it's not easy to teach that. I've had enough grad students where I see some of them who just have that ability, you know, Satoshi Otake, uh, a Japanese student who is such a famous veterinarian now uh, in Japan and Asia in general. He had a very creative mind as well. Uh, so he's just one example, but that kind of stuff, I think you're just kind of born with it. I'm sorry. I don't have a magic formula. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. I, yeah, that's cool. I think what Einstein said something along the lines of imagination is, is more powerful than knowledge or something like that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks a lot for our time, Dr. D and, uh, we will be in touch soon. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the time. It's an honor to uh, work with you. Hey everyone, please share our episodes with as many people as you can so we can continue to impact the life of swine professionals from around the globe 
with the wisdom of our great guests. Before you go, make sure to get in our waitlist for the Swine Talks web conference, the first online conference of the global swine industry, an update on hot topics, and we're even going to have some controversial topics of the global swine industry. So you can leverage that knowledge in your day today. Go to swinetalks.com and get on our waitlist. We'll talk soon.